Uh, but if we've not got a chance to meet, my name is Lance, and uh, like Brian, who's here, Zach leading worship, I get to serve as one of the pastors here. I'd love to get a chance to meet you. I hope that we've made today clear already. When we pray over things that we're going to say, things that will be sung, or the way that we're going to pray together, and certainly the way that I'm about to consider and look at the Bible together with you, we want things to be clear. Today is a Lord's Day. It's a Sunday. We gather regularly on the Lord's Day, and so that is normal. But on an Easter Sunday, an Easter Lord's Day, we do want to make sure that we don't miss an opportunity. We want to mark today with something. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, we want to be clear because there's visitors, and that's true. Some people come to church on a Sunday because a friend has invited them. Or maybe you, had, you need things to be clear because you're out of practice, it's been lost, and you say, well, here you are piling on on people who don't go to church all the time. I get it. I know, I know, I know. But the reality is, is that for those of us who are more in routine, that we could be just as prone to falling asleep and forgetting just how amazing the promises are that we have. So I open the morning by saying, he is risen, and you say, he is risen indeed. And what I long for, what I want is to mean it and to realize what it is that we're saying So, if I had to say, well, what do I want from a morning like this? I want it to be stamped with a big E. You say, well, this Lord's Day, what do you mean E? E for Easter? Well, it could be, but not just that. Well, what do you mean E for entertaining? Well, certainly not just that, though I hope you have an okay time. I hope you don't just have to just grin and bear it through the whole morning. What do you mean E for excellence? Well, no, we're not perfect and the power goes out. Though I hope you think, well, that was thoughtful. I'm grateful for what they did. What do you mean, E for edgy? You know, Easter comes every year. What, are we going to get something new here? How are we going to frame this? Well, I sure hope that there is fresh eyes or fresh sight on things, but not necessarily edgy. And so I'm going to go with a different E word. I promise I'm going to end this. You may be thinking to yourself, man, how many E words are in the dictionary? This could go on a while. I want to mark a day like this with E for explicit. And not like the Mark E for explicit that your cousin had as a secret cassette tape in his underwear drawer. My cousin actually did have that. I wasn't allowed to listen to things that had E for explicit. But I don't mean E explicit in that way. I mean explicit that we not miss what it is the point of Christianity. That the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is the hope of the church, and it has been down through the ages. That this very day, across the world, across civilizations and languages and cultures, there are those who are gathered because Jesus and his life and what he accomplished on the cross and how he overcame the grave because Jesus changed everything. I don't have anything better to give you on a morning like this. We as a church, now we believe the gospel is full It impacts all areas of life. There is a lot to say about what should come about as a result of the gospel, but it starts here. If we don't have Jesus and an understanding of what he's accomplished for us, then we've missed it. So what I want to do is look at the end of Romans chapter 8, and I want things to get explicit. That's what I want to do. We've been studying Romans uh, for a while, so if you're a visitor this morning, you're, you're just jumping right in with us. We've been in Romans for months and months and months. I'd love to take full credit and say a year and a half ago, I circled April 17th, and I knew we'd be at the end of Romans 8. It's a resurrection passage, but that would be lying, which is a bad thing. We're not lying, although I will say that over the last number of weeks, as we've enjoyed this eighth chapter of Romans and slowed down, 
it became apparent that this was a very appropriate passage to be in on a Sunday like this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the way that Paul is crescendoing his argument. By the time he gets to Romans 8, he's already spent seven full chapters convincing us of who Jesus is, why we need him, what he's accomplished. And he starts this chapter by saying, therefore, there's no condemnation. No condemnation. That's what he starts with saying. And here, by the time he gets to the end of Romans 8, he's just full-throated. He's exulting in the fact that there is no one who can condemn. If you'd bear with me, I'd say that in some ways, Romans 8 is like the eye of the tiger of the Bible. You know what I mean by eye of the tiger? You've heard this song before? No matter what's happening in my life or how tired I am, if I start hearing the beginning of eye of the tiger, like, you know what I mean? I'm not going to pretend to do it on my own, but... It's, it's just, it like perks you up, it wakes you up a little bit, and you get to the point where you're just like, oh man, I'm going to be ready to fight somebody. Like, let's just go, I'm ready to run, I could go through a wall, and by the time all the instruments are in and you're just full into Eye of the Tiger, you're, you're running the steps with Rocky or whatever you're doing, right? Like, it's, it's that kind of thing, it builds to the point of you wanting to just explode out, and I think that the idea of Romans 8, it's kind of the Eye of the Tiger of his writing, and here what we get to now read is him in full in the promise that we have in Christ. So this is Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 31 down through the end. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This statement, this assurance, this glorying is rooted in, it is built upon the reality of Jesus and what he accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so this morning, in order to be explicit about what the hope of the resurrection really is, I'm going to give you a few words to sort of hang our hat on. If I had to say it in the most simple way, these are things to think about on Easter. Things to think about. When, I, when you think, what does Easter mean? These are some of the things. These are the words that I want to use this morning for us to see. I think this is Paul's argument. When he wants to crescendo and get to the point where he's just like ripping, he's Hulk Hogan, just ripping his shirt and he's just saying, what, who, where, we're secure. It's the resurrection that gets him. He says more than that. So these are the words that I want to use to think about what does the resurrection mean? First, vindication. Vindication is going to be a word and a concept. I think it's built in to Jesus rising from the grave. Second, the idea of ascension, ascension. We want to talk about if the resurrection points backwards in a way 
for vindication. It also points forward to the ascension, and it's majorly important for us to understand. Then finally, I think Paul's point in all of these things, the vindicating power of the resurrection, the resurrection leading to the ascension is for our assurance, to make us feel stable, to be assured that we belong, that we have a place that we won't be lost. So those three words, vindication, ascension, and assurance. First, the resurrection of Jesus is a vindication of his work and ministry. Here's what I mean by this. If we stopped the story of the gospel, if we got through Friday night, which last, this Friday night a couple nights ago, we gathered out on the lawn around the Lord's Supper, we focused on the body of Jesus and his blood, we have this symbol of Christianity in many ways, the cross, which is right up behind me, it's still up there, I, I think, looked around, it's right there. So if we ended the story there, there would be a lot that could be said. You could say that God determined from all eternity past and then given prophets and set up the law and then brought about a virgin birth and Jesus lived a perfect life and did miraculous things. He died an innocent death. There was some craziness that happened at his death. The veil is torn and the world goes black and the ground itself trembles. But if we stop the story there, if we just said, so that was Jesus. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that would be okay because I would have faith. I would have faith in all the things that you just mentioned. I'd have faith that when Jesus said he came to save us from our sins that he could accomplish that. But there might be, there might be a nagging little thought, something like this, did it work? How do we know that God accepted Jesus and his sacrifice and his innocence? How do we know that death didn't just actually win again? How do we know that Jesus didn't get to the grave to never be heard from again, and it turns out that we'll just be swallowed up as well? You see, there could be a nagging dissatisfaction that maybe we're still in our sins, maybe we're still guilty. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, you know, if Christ wasn't raised, we're still in our sins. The idea could be, what if you did all that work and it didn't work? Have you ever applied to a job that had a multi-step process? Well, any, any steps are annoying. You probably first had to fill out some kind of online form with all of your history and all of your data, only to meet with the person for the first time and have to refill out all of your personal history and all of your data. All these interviews, and you finally are just excited, and you put it in, they'll say, well, we'll let you know. And then they never let you know. Or you did all this work for essays and applications to a college, and all the work was done, but you just didn't know if it worked. Tried to get a scholarship. You spent three days, you and your buddies coming up with the best line to text to the girl. You lost sleep over it. You finally nailed it. You sent it off. And then you're just waiting. You don't know if all the work worked. You see, I felt this kind of uncertainty recently because I had to do my taxes. You ever done your taxes? This is a part of an IRS gotcha scheme. Have you ever done your taxes? Now, you know what I'm saying. Here's the problem with taxes. No matter what you do, you feel like you're doing it wrong. I have this fear. I have this fear that at some point in the future, someone's going to come back to Tallahassee and they're going to say, 
hey, whatever happened to Lance? He used to live here and worked at a church over there, didn't he? And someone's going to shake their head and they're going to say, oh, prison. <laughs> no, but the, the person will maybe be shocked, and I'm, I'm flattered that they'd be shocked. They're shocked. They'll say, well, what in the world happened? I'll say, you know, I just finally caught up accidental tax fraud and just... <laughs> I have this fear that no matter how much work I've done, I get the software, you got the live agent, I'm Googling like crazy, I'm in the depths of the IRS, the bowels of the IRS document system. No matter what I do, I'm just afraid. The moment I press file, I'm just waiting and I'm thinking they're going to come. They're going to tell me, I'm sorry, we're carting you off because you made $11 on one one-thousandth of a Bitcoin and you didn't properly report it. Until the glorious vindication comes. Because a short while later, you're in the waiting game, and then word comes. Accepted. It's first received, and then you know you did at least something right, but you're waiting along and you're saying, has this been accepted? Has the uh, a person who has authority to receive or to reject, have they accepted? Have I done the steps properly? Has this satisfied their need for the filing of my taxes? Now, I'm going to end the analogy there because I know what you're thinking. Well, they could always do an audit later. So does that really apply to the gospel and the work of Jesus? Are you saying we could be audited? And I'm saying, please stop overanalyzing analogies. But I think the point is similar. The scriptures and Paul himself talk about the resurrection of Jesus as a vindication, as a word from God accepted that the work of Jesus had accomplished what he set out to accomplish that he really was powerful enough that in his innocence, when he lived a life that we should have lived, we know from the depth of our being we should live and be righteous, but we can't and we don't, that when he lived a life like that and then went to the grave, that he was fully capable not only of absorbing the wrath of God, but then of overcoming death itself, that there was going to be a new chapter written in history, that death wouldn't be the last word, but life would be. And that resurrection vindicates what he has accomplished on our behalf. A few pages to the left in Romans, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is describing the kind of faith that we need to have. And here's what he says, starting in verse 23. <laughs> you heard the slurp, sorry. Verse 23 of Romans 4. But the words, it was counted to him, says Abraham, that righteousness that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And then I want you to know verse 25, the combo platter, the interaction between his death and his resurrection, who was delivered up for our trespasses, but there's not a period there. Now, being delivered up for our trespasses is a wonderful thing, but it goes on, and he was raised for our justification. Justification is a final stamp. It's a word from God that says accepted, satisfied, not guilty. And it's that resurrection that is evidence to the watching world that Jesus accomplished all that he set out to accomplish. In that way, the resurrection points backward to the cross and makes it more certain for us that the cross can be rejoiced in because it is not the final word. So when you think about Easter, if I could be clear, when, I th when you think about Easter, why is it a big deal? He rose from the dead. How does that function well, one of the main ways that it functions is it points back to the cross and it says accepted, completed. The resurrection from the dead makes the words that Jesus declares on the cross, it is finished. It makes them 
vital, alive, and declared in a different way. So, that, that's one word. What should I think on Easter? Well, you should think vindication. Second, I'm going to use the word ascension. Ascension, the idea of ascending. Romans 8 tells us, more than that, and I love this phrase, it's more than that, Jesus who was raised, more than just that he died, he is now, it tells us, at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. This tells us that the life of Jesus, when he rose from the grave, was to be an eternal life, an ongoing life, and not only an ongoing life, but an intermediary life. He is for us, and it points forward to the fact that Jesus, when he rose from the grave, he didn't just walk around and say, isn't this cool, I can go through walls now, which he did, and I would have done more of that if I were him personally. Like, imagine the pranks. So you, you could have done a lot but the point was just that he rose again from the, the grave. He spoke with more than 500. He ate. He taught. He instructed them. He gave them promises and assurances. And then he rose further. And that's the idea of the resurrection. The resurrection is just the first fruits, both for us who will be in Christ and raised later, but it is also the first fruits of the beginning of the ascension, of the raising of Jesus. He went down to the depths of the earth, the bottom of death itself, and then he is raised all the way back to the Father. Here's how I could say this in the most simple of terms. On Easter, we should remember that Jesus rose more than six feet. That's what the ascension means. He did not simply come up out of a grave and then walk around as an idea of a reincarnation and just another chance. You know, sometimes that could be the message of the resurrection. If you stop just at him coming back to the earth, then you'd say to yourself, oh, so my hope is that when I die, I'll come back like a perpetual Groundhog's Day kind of thing. And then God's going to say to you, hey, in this life, like a few less naps, not as many Oreos, don't be so mean. All right, now try again. That's not the hope of the resurrection. Jesus was raised more than six feet. He's raised all the way to the heavens where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, ready to welcome you ready to be your advocate, to stand in your place. You come before the judgment throne, Jesus says, this one, he's mine. This one, she's mine. Give her all that is the inheritance due me and welcome them in. He's raised all the way to the right hand of the Father. And this is important and we must remember it on Easter because again, like at the end of the cross, there's not a period. Well, at the end of the morning when he comes up out of the tomb, there's not a period Jesus' life continues, and we should tell people, and they should want to know, what is Jesus doing now? When I was a kid, we'd get an allowance. I guess we didn't have much, but there was a, a couple-year period of time there where my parents thought we should learn money management, and so we'd get, you know, like $2 a week or something like that. And it just so happened that $2 was enough to jump on a bicycle and drive the gravel roads on the bike and go over the overpass and go down to the town mart in Manville. The little jingle was where three highways meet, you'll find much more. And I'd, I'd sing that if I was a better singer, but that's the jingle. I worked at this place for a couple of years in high school, but way before that, I would frequent it with my $2 allowance because I could go to a back wall in the town mart. And in the back wall in the town mart was an entire wall of VHS cassette tapes. All of the latest movies, and by latest I mean sometime in the last five years. Because imagine how long it takes for media to get to rural areas like that, right? 
But we would go and we'd get to pick through, and my brother and I, my little sister, we'd think about, what are we going to do? We're by ourselves, we're at, at home, what are we going to get to watch? I distinctly remember one day when the movie picked out seemed to be very much geared toward my little sister. I was upset. I couldn't believe it. We had to go home on our bikes. My mom instructed us that the movie we were going to be watching this particular day was The Princess Bride. And I don't know what it is about that movie, but many people remember the circumstances of watching that movie. And what I didn't know I felt very judged by is prior to starting the movie, just by looking at the title in the front, I was the boy in the movie. There's a boy in the movie who, when he starts hearing this story, he hates it. It's being narrated, and he's listening to it, and he hates it. He's like, oh, there's this romance and kissing. It's gross. Stop it. This is boring. And I remember thinking, I can't believe we're watching this movie about a princess, let alone a princess bride. But I, like the boy, became enamored by the story. And there's a couple of different points. I said earlier, what if we stopped at the cross? Well, there's times when the story kind of stops and it cuts back to the bedroom and, and the boy is incredulous. And he says, well, but, but just keep going on a little bit more. What happens next? Now what? And my guess is, is that if we stopped the story at the cross, hopefully what you'd say is, well, but then what happened? Is he just dead forever? Well, no, the resurrection. And in the same way, after telling the story of the resurrection, Imagine we get all the way through and we say, yeah, that Jesus, he's alive and he said he'd be alive forever and he could pass through doors and he would sort of disguise himself so he could teach about himself from the Bible and he made all kind of promises. Anyway, that's Jesus. What do you think a person hearing this story might ask? What do they want to know? Well, I can imagine interrupting and being like, uh, isn't there more to the story? Maybe something like this. Where is he now? You're telling me that God himself overcame the grave and walked around in some sort of super state? Is he still here? Can I see him? Is he on the top of a mountain? Should we take a pilgrimage? Where is he and what's he doing now? And it is the ascension, the fact that Jesus was raised more than six feet, it's the ascension of Jesus that answers the question, well, what is he doing now and why does the resurrection matter? So on Easter Sunday morning, we remember that Jesus came out not only of the, out of the grave, but into the heavens, where he will welcome us fully at the Father's side. The resurrection points backwards and vindicates the cross, and it points forward to our future being reunited to God forever. And this brings us to the last Word. I think it's the word of all of chapter 8. What Paul wants those who are considering Jesus to see is that they have profound assurance. You know, as I've gotten a little bit older, birthdays are coming soon, and old enough where you don't want a birthday, you know what I mean? Dave Barry once said, there comes a point in everyone's life where you need to stop expecting other people to make a huge deal about your birthday. And then he said, that age is age 12. So I'm well past that. And it's interesting to me the things that always seemed like such a cliche or heard from others about the instability of life sometimes. People talk about things like imposter syndrome. I talked with a sweet couple this last week who had their first baby. And it really is amazing 
they just hand you the child and say, go home. And so many people just say, it feels like there should be a license for this kind of thing. Or like, is that, is that what makes me a parent? Is this, a, is this what it takes? Like, am I, am I really doing a good job at this? There's a constant nagging feeling we might have that we're not sure we're in the place we should be. And if we are in the place we should be, we're not doing what we should have been doing. Or other people could have been doing it better. The number of men who are serving faithfully in vocations and waking up early, spending time to provide or advance or leverage their gifts to make the world a better place. Sometimes no matter how good the work is or how much the work is being done, there can still be a nagging feeling of, am I making a difference? Does this matter? Moms who work in and outside the home, wondering if they're positioned correctly or postured rightly, they want to do a wonderful job at raising kids, but they, they also are bright and they really want to make a difference and they're trying to figure out what does the balance look like here. And it seems like no one escapes these questions, these thoughts, these feelings. Do I belong? Is this right? Is this how it should be? Am I okay? It's as though, and I think Paul knows this, so many of us are leaving, we're living in life between the filed taxes and accepted state. We're just not quite sure. And Paul says, when we consider Jesus and him crucified and him risen, we should have profound assurance. And he just goes through and he just knocks them all down. Remember Michael Jordan talking about his retirements from basketball? One of the most insulting things to anyone who ever tried to play basketball against him he said, reflecting on his retirement, you know, there just really wasn't anyone else to beat. There just really wasn't any, every, everything that, I mean, yeah, they just accomplished it all. And I remember thinking that, you know, Jordan of all people is the kind of person who can make up slights like no one else. And there he was making up an insult. I think what Paul wants to do is knock down every objection. So my question here is, what is keeping you from feeling that you belong, that you're accepted, that you're welcomed in Christ? What is keeping you from moving deeper or more toward the kind of spirituality that you feel is beating inside of your chest? What is it that makes you worry? What kind of sins do you feel like are just strong enough that you're not quite fully there? What sort of cynicism or very real questions and doubts Keep you from accepting a kind of message like this. What accusations are thrown your way? How many not good enoughs have piled up? What kind of diagnosis do you fear? What kind of diagnosis have you already received? What sort of cultural problem keeps you up at night? What sort of conflict with a friend or a spouse or a child? It is these kind of things that Paul wants to wrap up in one big crescendoing, I the tiger kind of listen to me moment to say that the death and the life in the resurrection of Jesus covers it all. 
That what we're welcomed to in Him is a kind of assurance that bubbles up from the inside out. Not a performance assurance from the outside in, from the inside out. That you are more loved and accepted and received, more welcomed, more acquitted, with less condemnation than you could have ever imagined. What should we say to these things then? God is for us. Who could be against us? Think of the lengths that God went to to make you his own. Before eternity passed, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, made a pact together to say we will redeem sinful humanity out of their love determined to redeem. God setting up a foreshadowing of sacrifice from the very beginning in the garden, giving a law to direct and guide his people, but also to show them that they fall short of the standard, to stir in them a need for the Savior. Prophets coming down through the ages, declaring that God would move and would save. God calling a people, a people set apart to be the carrier of this Messiah. Then a young virgin receiving word from the angel. That God himself would enter into humanity, would set aside equality with God and put on human flesh. That same Jesus enduring all of the humiliations, all of the oddities of this life, living perfectly where you and I failed. Jesus then, in his perfection, willingly offering himself as a sacrifice, shutting his mouth while all others condemned and ultimately crucified him. The Spirit of the Father going down to the depth of the grave to raise the Son from the dead. Him then declaring that I will go to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And then Father and Son sending the Spirit to dwell with us, to walk with us in the infirmities of this world and life, compelling the Spirit to give us the Scriptures, putting His voice into all creation, and then ultimately uniting us in Jesus such that when God sees Jesus Christ, He sees us there united with Him. And what Paul wants to say is, if God has done all of this, then in a sense, if all of heaven and earth and all of creation is crying out for the work of Jesus, and if you have been placed in him, then what do you fear? How could you be lost? Who will undo this great work? No one. There is an assurance in the death and resurrection of Jesus that is deeper than this life itself. You need not fear death. The last enemy has been undone. The grave itself has been conquered. And if you are in Christ, then you will live forever. That is the hope of Christianity. There is nothing else to rejoice in. And as Paul writes it, he's just building an excitement to the point where it feels like it's almost a, a crying And my hope is, I don't know where you've come from on a morning like this. You may think to yourself, I could care, I'm caring a little bit more. All the way up to, oh man, you can't, you got to pin me down to this pew. I'm about to get crazy. I mean, I don't know what your scale of excitement is of this stuff. But my prayer, my desire would be that you consider the message. 
Ask yourself, what is it about Jesus that upended the world? And could he, in fact, carry me through to the end? If you give yourself to him, he will have you. Let's pray.